that makes help us make sense of tongues of fire coming down as uh, the apostles as they were speaking in languages. Right? So so many things were being parallel. It was a beautiful menorah pattern we saw there. Uh, and then finally, we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit and what it is. I believe the power of the Holy Spirit is. Yes, with the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculous things take place. But the purpose, broadly speaking, the purpose of us having the gift of the Holy Spirit is so that we will desire to do the will of God. Right? In whatever form that takes. Okay? We as humans, if left to our own devices, we will not desire to do God's will because God's will is oftentimes very difficult but it is the thing that he wants us to do. And so the reason why we have the written words, the reason why we have what it is we pray for when we pray for, to pray to be filled with the Spirit, uh, pray for the Spirit to be here, like things like that that we're kind of accustomed to in our Christian culture. Um, okay, so that's that's enough of last week's teaching. New terms, new terminology for this week. Uh, the first word is the Greek word translated fellowship that we see in Acts two forty two. That word, does anyone know what the word there is in Greek? Koi. Koinonia, koinonia, right, koinonia. It appears 20 times in the Greek scriptures and only once in Acts. It is a, so what, what do you think of when you, when you think of fellowship, when you think of the word fellowship? What, what do you picture going on? Anyone? People of like-minded faith. Okay, so a collection of similar people. Not similar people, but a similar thought among those different people. Okay, a gathering of, of different people who, have, who share values or, sh or share something in common, something deeper in common. Okay, okay. anyone else have an idea of what, what, what do you picture as you understand fellowship to be? Or the Lord of the Rings. Okay, no, no, that, that's good. That's actually, that's, I, I, so what, what, what makes them a fellowship? Common goal. They have a common goal. What are they, they're, they're doing a task together, right? That is what is pictured here in this word koinonia. It is joint participation, we can think of it as, um, social intercourse. It's not just it isn't, it isn't a fellowship by virtue of, fact, virtue of the fact that they are gathered or assembled together. It's that they come together to do something important together. That's what makes them a fellowship, right? Um, uh, placing a priority on this. So when, when we're in a fellowship, we're in a fellowship, we're placing a priority on this group of people socially, uh, practically, materially, financially, spiritually, like we, we have a default, like okay, this is the primary group of people, whether it's a large or small group, that is my fellowship, okay? The Hebrew equivalent, or what is translated into the Hebrew in the Septuagint, and if, and if you're not familiar with Septuagint, it is the Greek, uh, Greek 
translation of the Hebrew scriptures done by a group of 70 rabbis long, long time ago. Right? So these rabbis were like, okay, let's take the Hebrew and find the best Greek word we can for these Hebrew words. Um, the word that they translated into koinonia in Leviticus is the word tesumet, tesuma, which means uh, in most other places in scripture a pledge or a deposit, something placed in the hand. So we, we've heard the phrase, the right hand of fellowship, right? I think that's my, this might be where that originates from. There's, there's, a, there's an exchange going on. It's not just a handshake. It is a partnership. We're grasping hands. We're pledging something. There's a deposit made. It is a, it's something binding us together. Uh, and what could be binding us more together than the work of Messiah in the world? So that, I think, is, is, uh, is, is very interesting about the word koinonia. The second word uh, is, is something that Grant, I hope, will touch on next week, and that's the didache. And this is also in 2, verse 42. It, it appears 30 times in the Greek scriptures and four times in Acts. Didache simply means, or it's translated as instruction. <clears throat> and in other places, you may have in your translation teaching or doctrine things of that nature. Um, but again, going back to Septuagint, finding what the Hebrew equivalent is in the minds of those ancient 70 rabbis helps us to understand what is trying to be communicated underneath that Greek word. So if there's a layer of the Greek words, we have the English word, under that is the Greek word, but then under that, we can, we can get a glimpse of what the Hebrew, the Hebraic, or rabbinic thinking is, the Jewish concept underneath it as well. That word is the Hebrew word, lamad. <clears throat> and it, it is used often to denote uh, training, not just teaching or knowledge or instruction like lecture or anything like that. It is a training. And uh, it's used. Um, it's used once in. Wait, hold on, here's The first time it's used is in Deuteronomy four one. This lama. Deuteronomy four one says, "Now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am uh, lama. I'm teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land." which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. That's the first time it occurs. Um, there is a, a, another instance where it's used in Psalm 60, verse 1, for the choir director, according to Shushan Edut, a miktan of David, to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharev and with Aram Zobah, and uh, Joab returned and smoked 12,000 feet in the Valley of Saul. So, this is uh, a song, a song that you're going to teach or to train. Raise your hand if you've been involved in choral music or any kind of um, stage performance or anything like that. Raise your hand. Okay. Is it simply teaching what the director does? No. What the director is directing. Like it, there's movement. There is more than just what do you know about this song. What do you know about the script? You know about this, so this is this is picturing here, not just a the didache is, is much more than just facts. The 
Didache, the, the instruction of the apostles is much more in, in, in line with training, practical things as well. Like, how do you pray? How do you study? How do you even talk about scripture? How do you eat? Like, all of these things. That, that's kind of wrapped up into this concept, too, of Didache, of, of, of teaching. And again, because of our Greek, Western way of doing things, we're familiar with, with what we're doing right now. I'm up here on a raised platform. You're down there sitting in a seat facing me, right? Like this, this is a very Greek way of, of teaching and learning. But in the Hebraic, Eastern way, it's side by side, hand in hand, showing you how to do it. You follow me and you watch what I do and do it. Right? So this, this is baked into this concept here of, of Didache and, and very much um, uh, helpful. Um, finally, there's a, a use of this word in our morning prayer book, um, or our, our daily prayer book, in the morning blessings, where it says, it's the second, more, second set of morning blessings, I can't remember what page it's on, uh, it says, And may it be your will, Adonai, our God, and the God of our fathers, to accustom us to your Torah, and to make us cleave to your commandments. That word, to accustom us, is love. It's not teaching, it's not, it's, it's more of just getting us acquainted with it, custom us to it. Like you don't go to, to school to be accustomed to, to algebra. So, that, so that this is a different kind of feel than just, than just teaching. That's what I'm, this is the point I'm making. Okay, new words, koinonia, didache. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. Um, and I'm going to try to keep this to, hopefully I'll be done in like, So I said we weren't going to touch at all on Acts 242, but that's not entirely true. There's one thing I want to bring out here um, that, that was um, made me very happy to see. Um, so Acts 242 says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The four devotions are something Translated as 
only be only be strong and courageous. It's the word we translate strong. Chazak. Rach Chazak. That the battle cry, the war cry of the soldiers and warriors of Israel. Rach Chazak. Be strong. Be adhered to. Be glued to. Joshua 1, 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may achieve success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong, chazach, and courageous. Do not be terrified nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here in Acts, we're seeing this young, new Messianic community being devoted to the things of God, being devoted to prayer, the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, breaking bread. They were doing it with the same verve and enthusiasm as soldiers for, uh, for the king. So that, that puts a whole new spin on this devotion, right? It's just, it is a war cry. Yes, we are devoted. Only be strong. of how it is, what it is we should even be experiencing, or, or what, the, what the measure is, or metric is for what we should be, I don't want to get into feelings, but how it is we should be motivated to do the things that the apostles did, or we at least can see how they may have been rallied to it. Right. Moving on, Acts 2.43. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Okay, so first of all, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles signaled the moment of transition at which they were to take up the mantle of Messiah. Okay, and this is this, we see this pictured in other ways. Um, so they were waiting, and then they received the Holy Spirit, and now they continue the work of Messiah. When Elijah ascended, then Elisha began to operate in the miracles of Elijah. Yeshua's work began after the Holy Spirit descended on him. So this is a, he has ascended, Yeshua has ascended, they're waiting, the Spirit has come, now it's like, okay, training wheels are off, now you go and do how your master showed you to do. What is also of note here is it says, through the apostles. This was done through the apostles. Let's be clear, God performs miracles. God performs miracles, not people. In the name of Yeshua, these people were conduits by the power of the Holy Spirit 
of the miracles of God. Grant has said before, don't be a bucket, be a pipe. Don't gather and collect and hold. Be a conduit that things can go through, and especially the Spirit, especially the power, the witness, the word, light, everything. Be open to it passing through you. Moving on. And if you have questions or comments, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just chime in. Um, uh, Acts 2.44, And all those who had believed were gathered and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. This verse, I think, has often been thought to endorse a certain kind of ideology. Would you say? A certain kind of uh, political, economic way of, of governing. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's not really the point here. If you think about communal, collectivist communities over history... Because that's, that's what this is. This is a communal, collectivist group of people. Any revolutionary communal movements often start in the same way. How many of you have seen uh, Jesus' revolution yet? Basically, all, all, all you need to know for this example is the, the preview, where people are selling their stuff, moving out to, where was it, California. California, moving out to California to be a part of this movement, right? Um, well, the, the main character, the main protagonist, he gets there and, and they, they, they bring him and they put him up in this house where he's sharing, maybe he's sharing a bedroom, definitely sharing the bathroom and kitchen, and, and everyone's just, they're all just happy to be there, right? They have, they have devoted themselves to this cause and they've dropped everything, simplified their existence to be together in this one place. But what ends up happening, if you follow the histories of any of these groups, is that it then evolves. It doesn't stay that way, right? At the beginning of this revolutionary, communal, collectivist life together, it is that. And it needs to be that. To be grounded in something real. But then what happens is they mature. They gain the insight, the wisdom, the skills that they need to then go and do something beyond this communal collectivist group. Does that make sense? Um, Grant has often shared uh, the history of Zor, Ohio. Does anyone know where Zor is? How far away is it, would you say? I'm not sure. About a half hour? Okay, so not far. Zor, Ohio, as I understand it, Zor, Ohio was founded as a socialist community. If not openly Marxist, they had very socialist ideals where everyone owned everything, uh, there was no personal property, uh, we all shared everything. It was a smaller group as it started. Leadership decided. Now is you, Neil, and, and your wife, you get to own that property. 
up, so they became a what we would call a capitalist society overnight. So socialist to capitalist, right? I'm not up here preaching about capitalism. I'm not, I'm not talking about this. What I'm talking about is these necessary and historically documented developmental stages of any new movement. And what I believe we're seeing here in Acts is this first very vital developmental stage where they're coming together, they are dispensing with their property, they're coming together, giving to each other, receiving from each other, growing together, so that, so that at some point they will be able to be more mature and have, uh, have the things they need. Does, that, does, that, does this make sense? Um, also, the proximity to the temple was important too to this early community. Yeshua told them earlier in, in Acts to stay in Jerusalem, right? And we see how in their devotions, especially the, devoted to prayer, that meant they were in the temple. They were uh, Torah-observant Jewish people in the temple praying three times a day. So being near the temple was vitally important in, in establishing these rhythms for this community. So much so that people from outside of Jerusalem were coming in. Outsiders were, um, transplants were coming in, and they had a place to stay automatically. Just like in, you know, in the movies where we see the, the hippies or whatever, and it's like, oh, yeah, come on in. Are you, you're coming from Ohio? Oh, welcome. We love people from Galilee. You know, all this stuff. So they come together. They, they have this great experience. They get fortified and strengthened. They learn. They become more mature, and then they're able to go out. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a developmentally necessary stage in this community. And it's kind of, Mike and I were talking the other day about this and how our congregation started out in a home, right? There, so I can't speak, but I can imagine that there was a kind of verve and excitement about it, something new. It was um, motivating, um, and and everyone shared things. They didn't all live together, but when they were in their home, they shared things. That was necessary. That was a necessary developmental stage. Then we grew up. We grew up. We became more mature, and we became a kind of congregation that you see around in most communities. And then something happened where we were sensing, leadership was sensing, you know, I think we need to go back to this because we're too comfortable with a way of doing things that may not lead to the most mature disciples we could possibly come up with or possibly produce. And so we swing back. And now we're in home fellowships. Now we're doing that. We're trying to dig in and, and, and uh, brush away all of the excess, right? Just get back to the main things, do it together, rely on each other, be in each other's lives, have that, that right hand of fellowship, be participating together, depositing, like there's a, there's a pledge together. Do that. How long are we to do that? I'm not sure yet. But I'm glad we're doing it, and I think that this, this kind of pictures why it is, and at least shows, okay, they were doing this at this point in their development. 
we're doing this in this part of ours. And it's good for us to have kind of as our default this way of doing it. Not, not this, but our home fellowships as, as a way of doing things. That should be, I believe, the default where we, we can always fall back to when we need to be strengthened, when we need to, to rely on each other, lean on each other. Do you agree with that? Am I, am I just rambling? I see a few nodding heads. Okay, that's good. All right. Yeah, going back to basics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ben. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't hear that, um, watching online, they were the proximity to the temple in this community was had given them such an advantage. It was something that was vital to the, the, this time in their life, but it was also so close, right? And how we're doing things when we're coming here, or um, some, some of the, some of our home fellowships have people who are pretty much scattered but still may have to travel a little bit. But we try to keep that a little closer. That's kind of your point too, right? Yeah, and so there isn't, we don't have, we don't have the temple, right? We don't, but, and this really, having a church building isn't really the same thing either. Right. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, Jerusalem was a lot smaller than it is today, too. And so being in Jerusalem near the temple was right. Yeah, yeah. It's still very possible for everybody to walk there. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very accessible, very accessible, yeah. Which is interesting because even in that time, there was still only one Jerusalem and one temple, and not everybody was coming to Jerusalem. There were still these communities who were far flung, who may have had their synagogues and their places together, the homes in which they were meeting. So they were having those more uh, local and accessible spots. But there was this particular group who maybe, and, and I'm, I'm speaking completely off the top of my head, uh, so please don't fact check me on this. Um, or do, and, and I'll learn something. But I imagine that the people who were coming to Jerusalem from, from all these other communities around in the Galilee may have been emissaries from those communities. It may not have been all of them. It may have been like, hey, why don't you go, you, t- you and your wife or you, these two couples, why don't you go, be there on you know, ground zero of this, this Messianic community, go and learn and, and just immerse yourself in it and then come back and and help us do the same thing because we all just we all just can't pick up and go to Jerusalem, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Right. Their synagogues. Yeah. 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 Their synagogues were in the center of their towns. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there's something to say about the, the, the geographical, um, uh, you know, I don't know what, what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah, there, yeah, there were, there were, you know, this is Judaism at this time is not young, so there, there, there's all these communities all over, right? Um, yes, Tara. Oh yeah. You go to your parish. Right. Yes. Yes. Good. Thank you, Tara. In the in the Catholic tradition, there is the parish, right, which is a um, enforced boundary. Like if you're in that if you're in that area, that's where you go. Like that's it, right? Um, is that is there value in that? Maybe. I mean, it's all trade offs, right? So this is that's that's something to to to, to think about. So, yeah. Yes, sir. kind of colors the uh, mindset of the people at the time would be a, a perhaps more literal reading of that verse, which would be, fear was occurring to every soul. Attesting miracles were taking place through the apostles. Great fear was upon all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we don't take this as, as a frightened people, but we take this as a very respected people are building respect for the message of God, the teaching of God, the details. Right. There was a there was a weight to it. And and it's it's reflected in what they're doing. Yeah. And how they're doing yeah, there's, that's something that I would uh, task any of you with, is to look at that word there that's translated fear, or in mine, I have the NASB, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, right? So that there, was, there, was, there was a kind of um, this necessary uh, feeling of, or, or placement of, of the importance of a thing, right? Like, we are not it, this is something amazing and powerful and beautiful, and we will be in fear of it. We will have awe for it, and that will color everything we do together as a community because we have started with that. I think that's 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 very wise. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. Uh, let's see. We're going. We're going to go down. So then we, then we see the, uh, the healing of the lame beggar. And there's one thing I want to point out to this, uh, about this story that I think is, is beautiful. Um, so we see Peter and John going into the temple to pray. They're at the, at the ninth hour. Uh, this is the, uh, is this the afternoon or evening I think this is the afternoon prayers, the ninth hour. So it's the ninth hour after sunrise, I believe. The third hour is the 
morning prayers. The ninth hour is the, the afternoon prayers. So they're going in. This beggar who is placed there is placed there because he and his family know that there are always going to be righteous people coming into the temple to pray at these times. So he sees them coming, and he knows that they're going in to pray. He also knows what they're going in to pray, what they're going to pray. What are they going to pray? What did we pray this morning? The Amida, which is also called the what prayers? The standing prayers. Okay. See where I'm going with this? This is a man who has never walked, never stood in his entire life. This is particularly poignant at this moment. In addition to the miracle of the completeness of his recovery. So think of this. It isn't so much that he's now able to walk. It's that he's now able to walk after having never learned how to walk. He has balance. It says he um, he was walking and jumping and dancing. He was able to do all of these things like that. that that's a level of miracle that maybe we haven't seen as much. But Peter and John were on their way to, to pray the prayers. They were there to pray the standing prayers. And this healed man probably never, never did that before. But he saw people going in and out of the temple to pray to God in this ancient way. And in verse 11... 3 verse 11, and while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. So he went with them. He leaped and danced. And he's like, okay, let's go and pray. Let's go and stand and pray for the first time in his life. It's no coincidence that this is the miracle that Peter and John were able to be conduits for at this moment, for this man. I think that's beautiful. Moving down. In verses 13 through 20, 13 through 18, 13 through 18, we see a list of five messianic titles that Peter gives to Yeshua. The first one, the first, the first one is in verse thirteen. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified the servant of God, Yeshua. And again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. I don't know how how yours will. It, it's slightly different, probably, in the wording. In verse fourteen, but you disowned the Holy One and Righteous One. So there's two more. In verse fifteen. It's referred to as the Prince of Life. And then down in 18, he's called his Messiah, God's Messiah. So, servant of God, holy one, righteous one, Prince of Life, his Messiah. When we, when we see the servant, the servant of the Lord, this is a, a title that was also applied to Moses and Joshua and David. 
and it implies a kind of, uh, it, it's service, right? It is a diminishing. He is he's the one who washed the feet of his disciples. He is a servant. The Holy One. Uh, Isaiah and the prophets refer to God as the Holy One of Israel, or just the Holy One. Evil spirits recognize Yeshua as the Holy One of God. And Peter then confesses, you are the Holy One of God. This is Peter again. So here, he is someone who is set apart, the set-apart one. Third title, the righteous one, Hatzadik. This implies an upright, godly, Torah-observant life, selfless and sinless. In, in Judaism, a tzaddik is a specific thing, and it's at least someone who is Torah-observant, who uh, keeps the commands, who prays the prayers, who does the things, is sinless, upright, and godly, and he is the Hadzadik, the righteous one. The fourth one, Prince of Life. This appears nowhere else in Scripture uh, and most likely alludes to the resurrection and Yeshua's conquest over death, which was a big sticking point uh, for the, the leadership at the time, evidenced by the fact that Peter kept saying to them, whom you crucified, this Yeshua, whom you crucified. Like, you are about death, but I follow the Prince of Life. Um. And ironically, of course, who did, they, who did they send free instead of Yeshua but a murderer, someone who took life? They set free someone who took life instead of the one who gives life. So this prince of life is a conquering leader. Finally, the fifth title, the anointed one. Now, prophets anointed kings of Israel with oil to symbolize the Lord's spirit was upon them to rule. But not only kings were anointed, who else were anointed um, in, we see in, in Scripture? Two other, two other groups. Priests and prophets. Priests, prophets, and kings. And, and isn't Yeshua all three of those? He is the anointed one, the Messiah. So this is also saying that the Spirit is upon him in all of his capacities as king, as uh, as prophet and as priest. There's something else to be, to be dug in there more about, I think, how it is we could respond to each of these titles of him, the ways in which we understand he, he is, as the servant, as the holy one, as the righteous one, as the prince of life, and as the anointed one. There's something that we can discuss, I think, more. Maybe we maybe do that over Oneg. Um. Okay, moving on, and this will be the last thing. Um, last thing I share. Well, actually, let me let me uh, talk to you about this sheet of paper here real quick. Uh, those of you who are watching, um, I passed out a, a, a excerpt from Josephus and his history, Jewish War, about the the community, the Messianic community at the time. And I will share this with y'all. I'll send it out maybe in next week's Thursday update. Uh, but I just want to read. Uh, a little bit from this, and then I think we could probably wrap up there for today. <clears throat> and this goes. This is going back to how they're described at the beginning or at the end of chapter two. 
So that says, no one can be found among them, and them meaning this, this Messianic apostolic community, who is more than another. For those who join them share what they have in common with the others, so that neither poverty nor excess of wealth can be found among them. Everyone's possessions are combined with everyone else's. The result is, as it were, one household for all the brethren. They also have administrators appointed to take care of their common affairs. The whole body determines the specific duties of each officer. If any of their sect visit from other places, what they have lies open for the visitor, just as if he were their own. Then they lodge with people they never knew before, as if they had been long acquainted with them. Neither do they buy or sell anything with one another. Every one of them gives whatever he has to him that needs it. And he receives back whatever might be convenient for himself. And although no repayment is required, they may take what they need of whomever they please. And here's the point of this, I think. And as for their devotion to God, they, are, they act extraordinarily. Before sunrise, they do not speak of ordinary matters, but they offer up specific prayers, which they have received from their forefathers. Here's the prayers. After this, every one of them are sent away by their overseers to work, practicing those vocations in which they are skilled, in which they work diligently until the fifth hour. Then they assemble themselves together again into one place and quietly set themselves down. The baker serves them loaves in order, breaking of bread. The cook also brings a single plate of one sort of food and sets it before every one of them. The head of the table says a blessing before the meal, and no one tastes of the food before the blessing is said. The same person, after he has eaten, says the grace after the meal. At both the beginning and the ending, they thank God as he that bestows their food upon them, and then they undertake their labors again until the evening when they return home to supper after the same manner. If any strangers are visiting, they sit down with them. So again, this is... All of these ways in which we do things, the model we're, we're, we're uh, um, using is to help keep us devoted to God. That's, that's the point. And if we're not doing that, if that's not an outcome of any... We've got to figure out some other way. We've got to be brave enough, courageous enough, and humble enough to recognize when that is, which is not an easy thing to do, to just change midstream, right? We've done it, so we have that under our belts. We've, we've done a courageous thing. Some of us maybe reluctantly, <laughs> certainly some of us reluctantly, um, but we, we did it by the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe. So... Some things to chew on, some things to discuss um, in your home fellowships and uh, for us here today. So thanks again for your time, and I'm going to close in prayer, and then we can break for lunch. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit that you give to us in order that we can do your will. And not only that, but that we could desire to do your will. And I pray, Father, that you fill us with your spirit now so that that desire to, to get to the bottom of things, to, to search out the scriptures, 
to find the truth, to get our questions answered, or at least to be courageous enough to ask them. Uh, that we would uh, be hand in hand in this, lean on each other um, and support each other, encourage each other in the questioning, in the searching. Um, and, and then at the end of the day, coming back together, uh, eating together on good food and also your word and of, and of fellowship and good chawa. We thank you for today, your Shabbat, for being with us and for the gift you give of your son in whom we have uh, all our hope and strength, Yeshua. Amen.